passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When Ryan's when it's time to begin, it's on the rewind around with John Pollock and waiting the 18. That makes sense that these things we see in the ring every week on TV. It's rewind around for Monday night, download a Tuesday morning from the post wrestling site. It's rewind around for Monday night on USA now on the John and Wade take the mic. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of Rewind to Raw. I'm John Pollock, joined by no one. I'm all alone. Wei Ting is still on vacation. He is in Japan, so everyone is stuck with me tonight. But we're going to have a good time. There's no shortage of topics to discuss, and we will get into tonight's episode of Raw from Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm also going to share some of my quick thoughts on the NXT UK TakeOver show from Sunday, along with the Impact Wrestling Hard to Kill show. It was a very, very busy weekend, and we also have a very busy week coming up. So I appreciate all of you for tuning in. Wei will be back next week, but we've got some exciting stuff while Wei has a much-deserved time away while he is uh, still in Japan. So let's get right into things. Coming up this week on schedule, we are going to be having some guests joining me because I'm not going to be alone this whole week. On Wednesday night, it's going to be Rewinded Dynamite and joining me right here in studio at the post office will be Damian Abraham. He will be joining me for Rewinded Dynamite as we will go through Wednesday's offering from All Elite Wrestling. Braden and Davey conversely are going to have up next coming your way uh, to download. Also, if you subscribe to Up Next YouTube channel. They go live every Wednesday night, 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, so if you want to get a jump on their podcast, you can watch it and feel like you are right there in the BDE with Braden and Davey, so check that out. Lots of uh, great stuff on Wednesday night every week here at postwrestling.com. We move on to Thursday, and this is always one of our most anticipated shows of the year. It is the 2020 MMA Prediction Show, where I'm going to be joined It's our yearly chat with ESPN's Ariel Helwani. It's a busy week leading into Saturday night's UFC 246 card, but Ariel is going to stop by. We're going to go revisit the predictions that were made for the beginning of 2019 and see how Ariel fared, and then we'll make a whole new list of predictions for 2020 and play the most famous game in combat sports, likely, unlikely. So that's all coming up on Thursday, so you can check that out. From there, uh, and I believe I'm going to put that show up Tuesday night for patrons two days early. So much like what we did with the Best of Worst of show, if you are a member of the Post Wrestling Cafe, you will get early access on Tuesday night to the MMA Prediction Show. So uh, look for that as well. Uh, I'm going to try and do a couple bonus 
Patreon shows this week, uh, some news roundup and, and who knows what, um, because we don't have a new show coming out Tuesday. So we're going to make it up with some, uh, some quick bonus shows, uh, this week. So look out for that if you're a cafe member and we hope you're enjoying all of the content. So Thursday, it's the MMA prediction show. Should be a fun one. Moving on to Friday, it is Rewind to SmackDown. Tentatively, it will be a solo format with me. Uh, we'll see if anything changes there. Saturday, we have got the Rocky Maivia Picture Show, and Nate Milton has gone all out for this one. He is releasing the 2010 film Faster, starring, you guessed it, Dwayne Johnson and his guest this week, Chris from L.A. and Hanzi. If you listen to the Cafe Hangout, if you are familiar with Hanzi, you will look forward to this review on Saturday of Faster with Dwayne Johnson. Saturday night, I'm going to be here with Phil Chairtalk. We are going to review UFC 246. Conor McGregor is back, taking on Donald Cerrone. Also a rematch between Holly Holm and Raquel Pennington from UFC 184 in 2015. They're going to be rematching. And then Sunday, everything winds down for the week with the latest edition of Thunderstruck. This week, it is going to be J.P. Houlihan, who was just on our uh, BWE review of TakeOver UK. He's going to be with WH Park on Sunday, and they are reviewing Jushin Thunder Liger, Yoshinobu Kanemaru. This is a Pro Wrestling NOAA Tokyo Dome card from July of 2004 for the GHC Junior Heavyweight Championship. JP and WH should have a fantastic show running through that card, which was NOAA's very first time at the Tokyo Dome. Uh, Headlined by Kenta Kobashi and Junakiyama. So all of that you can find at postwrestling.com as well as postwrestlingcafe.com where we will have early access to the MMA prediction show, rewind to SmackDown, and who knows, maybe a few other bonus shows. You can join the cafe uh, for as low as $6 US per month. That gives you minimum two bonus shows per week and access to our entire library. Our schedule will be getting back to normal next week with the return of the Cafe Hangout and lots leading into the Royal Rumble, which is quickly approaching. So that is all that is happening at postwrestling.com. I got home from Japan late Sunday night. It was actually in the middle of the Impact pay-per-view, so I ended up watching that pay-per-view today. It was a hell of a travel day for me. I left Tokyo. I woke up at 6 a.m. local time in Tokyo on Sunday morning, which would be the equivalent of 4 p.m. Saturday afternoon in the Eastern time zone. Okay, so we won't do too much math here, but suffice to say, I went from Tokyo to, uh, I went from my hotel to Narita Airport, which was about a hour and a half trek by train, had my flight, which was 11 plus hours. This was a much better setup than going there because on the plane ride over, I was in the dreaded middle seat, which is just life's way of laughing at you. I had to sit in this middle seat. It's actually was not as bad as I anticipated it. I, I used my movie theory of when I go into a movie, I make sure to know how long it is. So I mentally can prepare for how long I have to be seated somewhere. So I I was very excited about this trip to Japan. The flight, not so much. I was dreading this flight that I was just I'm not a I'm not someone that uh I don't get anxious flying or anything like that. I just die from sheer boredom of sitting and the idea of being seated for 13 plus hours on the way over there was just too much to handle. And Maybe I built it up way too much in my mind because that flight was 
a relative breeze. As much as a 13-hour flight could be, it was painless. And I was actually, I had like a ton of energy when we got off that flight. Coming back, it was 11 hours because I was going to Dallas and landed in Dallas, had all these warnings from American Airlines ahead of time that uh, there were going to be weather issues and there was a chance of getting uh, detained in Dallas or my connection in Chicago. It was, I was a ping pong ball on Sunday going from country to country, city to city, and it was amusing to me that I landed in Dallas and this was a couple hours before the hard to kill pay-per-view. So on the back of my mind, I'm thinking if I get stranded here overnight, there's a chance I could go to this TNA pay-per-view and then have my flight the next day. Thankfully, there were no issues. So I arrived in Dallas and if there's a new pet peeve I have, it is – so I I land in Dallas and we landed a half hour early ahead of schedule and it took me 90 minutes to get off that plane and to the gate for my connecting flight. I made it with 20 minutes until boarding time, which was ridiculous given the the added cushion of those 30 minutes, but I had to get off. I had to get into the longest customs line that they had provided all of three people to work this line of several hundred uh, getting off these flights on a Sunday morning to go through customs, then have to go through my security check again, where the new bane of my existence is this mic that we bring with us when we're on the road that no less than two times during this uh, trip home, just the trip home, I had to unload my suitcase to show them that this was a microphone. God knows what they thought was in my suitcase. I was the world's most dangerous looking podcaster to these security folks as I explained what this was and what its function is. So anyway, all of that said, I get to the the furthest terminal by foot, make it onto my flight from Dallas to Chicago. Now, I knew in Chicago I was going to have a bit of a wait. It was supposed to be a four-hour layover, which I was not uh, – you know, as, as long as you know these things in advance, you can prepare adequately. I was pretty hungry at this point, grab something to eat, and then the plan was just to do some work because I'm I'm grossly behind on stuff. And in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking if I could get good Wi-Fi here, I could uh, like just bang out this takeover show during my layover and just, and just watch it. Uh, the Wi-Fi was a little spotty, as was the weather, as was our plane, which was not arriving on time. So we had the first delay, then the second delay. I think we got a third delay in there. It was like 20 minutes before we were to board and we're getting the announcement that our, our plane hasn't arrived. It was coming from Rochester and God knows where it was. It was not in Chicago. And... I had Scrump on standby in case I was going to be stranded in Chicago. Uh, a true MVP, Scrump was Scrump was ready if uh, if the the bat signal were to arise. But then I finally got on my flight Sunday night, flew home to Toronto, and I'm almost at the home stretch. And we have this this train that goes from Pearson Airport right into the downtown area. It is called the Up Express. It's a it's a miracle. This this train, very accessible, very easy to use, but it's a terminal away at the airport. So I've got my luggage. I make my way all the way over here. I am at about twenty seven plus hours of travel by this point, and I get there, and I notice that the 
the door is shut to get to this up express where the woman informs me, yes, the signal is down. It runs through a signal. And thus, there is no express to take you into the city. I just said, wonderful, as I turned around and walked all the way back. There are no, there are no signs letting, you know, potential train users aware of this technological failure. Just all these people wandering to uh, accept the same fate I have. And I'm just watching all these people. I was like, I can't get on a megaphone here and ex- inform everybody that this train is down. Anyway, a cab ride later, I arrived home after 28 hours of travel that amazingly, it sounds crazy. It was bearable. It was not a, a horrendous travel experience. So I made the best of my my long, long travel day. It is good to be home. I had a wonderful time in Japan, as uh, many people listening to our shows, I'm sure, could uh, could take. Uh, but I was ready to come home. It was uh, it was a long trip away from home. It was like t- ten days uh, I was gone. So amazingly, I've not been hit with the jet lag. I came back. I went to sleep Sunday night at about one thirty a.m. Woke up. I was wide awake at six and have been up since. So it is now almost midnight. And I certainly was feeling it during Raw. I will not lie. And that's not even an indictment of Raw. It's just all of this. I, I it, it hit me at around 6 p.m. tonight, but I just powered through. And then I had to do uh, another recording tonight and then Raw. And around the second hour of Raw, this show was looking a little daunting for me. But here I am. So anyway, that was my travel day that many of you, maybe I should... uh just timestamp this so everyone can pass through it. Or maybe not. Maybe, you know what? I went through 28 hours. You can go through 10 minutes. But there you go. That was uh, that was tr- my travel day. And then I came home on Monday, and it was back to work. And if there is one heartfelt lesson I learned on Monday, it was logging onto Twitter and realizing that everyone still fucking hates everybody because that was the lesson of the day on Monday uh, through all of the news going on. And where, where do we want to start uh, here? I don't have a way to bounce off here and just uh, tell us where to go and, and direct me. So this is just – this is like my airplane that was just lost and just orbiting Chicago somewhere after leaving the destination of Rochester. But I guess we can start off – why not? Let us start off with – Gabe Sapolsky and David Starr, they had quite the interaction, and this has been building up for a while. David Starr has been very critical of some of the rumored uh, treatment of certain uh, performers that have appeared on Evolve cards in the past, uh, alleging that some have not been paid. So David Starr has been very vocal about this. On Monday, he wrote a tweet tagging WWE, Triple H, NXT, stating... I heard Triple H say on a podcast that y'all only supported promotions that pay people properly and take care of the workers. I should make you aware that an employee of yours, Gabe Sapolsky of Evolve, has not been living up to his end of that bargain. So I would imagine that Gabe Sapolsky has been asked about this continually, and he had a response, and he posted the thread of all threads. Like, this thing was just enormous. Uh, it has since been deleted, but you know what? On the internet, nothing is ever deleted. So I'm going to do my best to go through this. And if I find myself just uh, going down a, a dark hole here, uh, I will give up on this. But let us let us read some of this from Gabe Sapolsky. Here's the Max Barsky 
aka David Starr story. And he really has an affinity for David Starr's real name. He doesn't give a damn about wrestler pay. This is all an act. If there was an ounce of sincerity in any of this, I would pay attention to it. It's also not factual and all in broad strokes. Max Barsky, aka David Starr, emailed me relentlessly to be in Evolve a few years ago. I gave him a shot and he ignored booking instructions. This is among the other shots he had, which he failed at. I was on the fence about him, though. Max Barsky, a.k.a. David Starr, was then involved in a social media scandal with a female fan. I valued this fan, and Barsky came off as a total scumbag, so his chance of being booked was basically zero. In addition, I've had numerous talent complain to me about Max Barsky, a.k.a. David Starr, stiffing them, giving them concussions, and then actually blaming them for these accidents. I watched his heralded match with Walter, where he selfishly no-sold to get himself over. This isn't even the match where he went into business for himself and stepped on the UK title, so there's no chance I'll ever book Max Barsky. In fact, it's no one he had to move to the UK to get full-time work because he failed at his PC tryout at Impact and at ROH. Why AEW isn't interested in him, I don't know. Maybe they are. Add to this the embarrassing and offensive picture of Max Barsky taking a selfie, crying at a Holocaust memorial, and I was finished with him. Max Barsky can only stay in the headlines and relevant by creating controversy. He knows he's never going to work for me, and most likely anything I'm associated with. If he was truly interested in wrestler pay, he has my email. He could have emailed me to discuss things. He wants headlines. He lies to get them. He stretches the truth. He exaggerates. He uses the terms like fraud about me when a simple Google search or seeing what Meltzer reported would show there is no basis. He plugs his t-shirt saying, I reportedly told talent not to wear it. Reported where? By who? This is a carny shirt plug. I had getting dragged down into this as I try to stay away from negativity, but now he's pushed too far and I need to get the truth out there. We promote two shows a month in different markets. No indie does this. I negotiate all terms at the time of the booking. If I can't meet a wrestler's price, I understand and it's business. I don't expect any deals. If they can't work for what we pay, I understand and it's business. It's how I've been doing this since 2002 while everyone else has come and gone. It's how I'm in the position I am now. We deliver everything we promise, if there's six paid tickets at Style Battle or whatever. We have a unique stage, and I want to give as many people the opportunity as possible to be on it. So yes, there might be one to three spots we don't pay for on a show. These are spots that are all over budget and otherwise would not exist. They do not take spots from paid wrestlers. When I offer these spots, I see the looks of excitement on people's faces for this opportunity. These are not established talents. These are talents I want to get to know. If they make it through this tryout, they are always paid. I understand if you might disagree with this. I feel it's important to give these opportunities, but if public outrage is so much, I'll kill these spots. It's all the same to me, honestly. I just love giving talent opportunity, watching them grow and watching them make money. It is my passion. Anyone who sticks with me past a couple of months will tell you how passionate and caring I am for the talent. We take all the safety precautions we can from EMT and ambulance to making sure the ring is clean. Yes, these should be standard, so I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I've worked too long and hard and been through too many bad times to let Max Barsky grab headlines at my expense. I realize I've done everything. I'm swore I would not, I wouldn't hear, but him starting this assault is too much. I'm sure Max Barsky will come back with a lot of lies and half-truths, or no truths, or flat-out BS. He's a piece of garbage, and I'm not the only one who feels this way. He's a scavenger and a rat looking to exploit whatever he can to stay relevant. So go stiff more people, Max. Go do your carny stuff. Go lie more. You are a true politician. You are a fraud. Go tag WWE. I'm sure some of you will twist my words around, or whatever you do, I'll just block you. I got shows this weekend and other stuff to worry about. Finally, 
While I am ashamed at myself for even tweeting this thread and contributing to the negative Twitter culture, I'll close by saying there's a lot more to issues and things than the headline you read in a 180-character tweet. Try to get the real story. I am very impressed that I got through that entire thing. And don't get me wrong. It was uh, certainly a well-coordinated series of tweets by Gabe Sapolsky. He got this response from David Starr. Mr. Barsky here. I see you're going with the idea that me calling out you, a carny promoter who insists people work for free or at very reduced wages is what's killing the business. I'll gladly have a public discussion with you when you actually pay all of your workers. He then went on to say that uh, he brought up uh, Sapolsky having a guaranteed salary. Use your connections to justify paying workers, risking their bodies for you to work for less money or no money. You're the bad guy here. And he put out a T-shirt promoted his work with equity in the UK. And that is kind of where things went with uh, Gabe Sapolsky eventually coming back. He deleted all of those tweets and he basically apologized for the tw the Twitter thread and then said that all evolved performers would be paid, which I believe that tweet was also taken down as well. Um, so it seemed like he regretted putting his tweets up and I guess you can speculate if he was spoken to about taking down those tweets or not and listen it's to me it let, let's just be clear it's it is hypocritical when Paul Levesque goes on Corey Graves podcast and talks about working with UK indies that are doing business the right way that are professional that have rings that are uh sufficient to and being professional entities and evolve is largely you know they have a business relationship with WWE and to me when you are putting forth uh an entertainment product and you are taking in revenue for that product I think that you have to be paying that talent and evolve has reached a level now where these, these spots, these opportunities, um, you can argue either way. You can argue the side that I just laid out there of, you know, talent. They should be paid. These are, you know, you are putting out a product and while no one may be paying for to see those specific performers, I could say that about a lot of shows that if we get down to who are the talents that are being paid for, there would be a lot of people in this business that are not being paid on shows. And that's just not how, um, that's not how commerce works. That said, if you are only as valuable as the leverage that you can acquire, and if Gabe was to suddenly offer these spots or, or take them away, there, there are always going to be performers that are willing to take those spots and view it as I am taking this sacrifice today in the hopes of reaping those benefits tomorrow. I want to get onto the radar of a Gabe Sapolsky and an evolved fan base. And I want to go out there and have such a performance that I become a commodity. And that's probably Gabe Sapolsky's thinking in all of this, but he receives a, a lot of backlash for this. And I think principally it is the idea that they are now connected to the largest wrestling company in the history of this industry. And you're not going to get the sympathy of running a mom and pop shop when you have that attachment to the WWE and you frequently have NXT talent on your shows and NXT talent doing appearances that 
you're just in a different stratosphere now. Whether that is trickling down or not, that is the perception, and that is that you are at best, uh, or I should say at worst, loosely affiliated with WWE. And I wouldn't even use the word loosely. I think you can see the the connections just right up and down the cards. To me, uh, David Starr is someone that I mean he he pushes. He pushes topics that are, for the longest time, have been taboo to talk about within the industry. The idea of unions and representation and topics that a lot of promoters, they do not want to deal with. And it becomes easy to attack the attack the person that is vocalizing that message rather than attacking the argument and whether there is some, some substance to that. And this is an industry that, when it is one person, they are going to get attacked by the establishment, by people that do not want to see changes to this industry. And that is why it's going to take larger numbers to make meaningful changes to things at a larger, um, to, to a larger degree than just simply, you know, this is, this is an issue, but we can look a lot bigger. We can look and ask questions about why these WWE performers do not share in any of the revenue of these massive television contracts when they are the product. And on the other side, it's the idea that the WWE is so big that they are interchangeable parts at this point, that the largest star can leave and we can replace and go on. And it's so much the brand of WWE that no one particular performer is ever going to hurt this company to any degree, much less uh, a, a company like, like an Evolve. So, to me, I, I think that David Starr brings up a lot of topics that need to be discussed, and it becomes very easy to just go after David Starr if you don't like him. But I, to me, that does not defeat the argument that I would hope a lot of performers are having and asking those questions. And a lot of people, they're making great money, but others are not. And this is an industry about making the most amount of money with a window that is always closing and has the chance to shatter in your face if you have a career-threatening injury and thinking about what state will I be in at the age of 60 rather than the age of 25 where I'm invincible and this is going to last forever. So I thought this was an important story to talk about. It's going to get dismissed as just a he said, he said Twitter battle. But there is real discussion here to just the payment structure and the rights of talent that are not going to be handed to them. They are going to have to fight for those rights if they feel they do not have enough or they want more leverage, more negotiating power. And I mean, I'm never going to wholeheartedly believe that we are going to see a fully fleshed out union or association in MMA or professional wrestling. I just don't see it happening. Um, there's just too much of a selfish nature to this industry that the idea of a large amount bandying together at the highest level, it's, I would love to be wrong, but it's not something I'm holding my breath for. Moving on from that, some other stories from the weekend. Um, certainly the big one involved everything to do with Tessa Blanchard that I thought uh, Brian Mann, Nate Milton, and Andrew Thompson did a really great job of dissecting on Sunday's uh, impact review, which you can find up on the site, uh, going through the many different um, the many different topics this raises. Um, this became a storm over the weekend for Tessa Blanchard when she sent out that one tweet about women rallying together and helping one another. And it was met with the reaction from women such as Allison Kay, Chelsea Green getting involved and calling out their belief that 
it's a very hypocritical tweet for someone that has been linked to such allegations as she had of abuse of other talent, of using the N-word against a female performer, and 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 bullying. So this was obviously the big story that we don't have to go through all of the specific details. That has been done. You fast forward to Sunday night, Impact stuck with their plan. They put the title onto Tessa Blanchard, and you can watch the video of the post-match, which they were off the air, I would say about three minutes after the end of that match with Sammy Callahan, and you didn't get the huge championship celebration and perhaps leaving that for television, but Voices of Wrestling did have um, a video of what happened after they went off the air, and Tessa's family is in the ring, and you're hearing a pretty large chant of, you deserve it, but also an audible, no, you don't. By several fans. So it's not as though this was a audience that was completely ignoring or just not aware of what happened over the weekend that you could you could hear um, it, it was a minority, but it was there. And Tessa gave a speech to the crowd there at the bomb factory in Dallas, Texas, and largely just she did not call out the issue, but kind of danced around it said that nobody in this life is perfect we're all human and it doesn't matter what you say about me it doesn't matter what you call me i have one of the strongest minds that i've ever known so whenever you come for me you come for all these people and i'm now the standard bearer of impact wrestling and man or woman pound for pound i'm one of the best in the world and i'm now your world champion so that was as much of an acknowledgement as tessa was going to give other than the uh, response on twitter saturday where she didn't get into specifics, but did deny um, what was being thrown at her without breaking it down point by point. I think that there is a time and a platform that Tessa needs to address this. I think the idea of just ignoring it may be something that you can get away with in the short term and that you're not going to get the cat calls from the audience. But I think in the long term picture, it's something that you can't just brush this aside without addressing it. And, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone that is doubting that these, that obviously these, some of these issues occurred. Uh, Tessa Blanchard, that's for her to address and give her side of the story. Um, I don't know if in the broadcast or in the body of an episode of Impact is really that platform. I don't think Twitter is the platform either. I think this is someone that probably wants to give a, a much more uh, lengthier response to this. And maybe I, 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 I will put it this way. If it is simply to serve as PR and just make all of this go away and it's not a real apology, then it kind of falls flat. I think in any of these situations, and God knows in professional wrestling, there's lots of these not specific stories like this, but when someone finds themselves uh, being in the in the storm of a controversy, that it is often make it go away. And I think we have to look a little deeper and hope that this woman is genuinely sorry for what she put another female wrestler through that she is legitimately sorry rather than PR sorry. And I think there is a difference there and you would hope that someone can rehabilitate themselves if this is a problem. And that to me is the bigger picture. And that's why we don't, I, I, I think we have to be quick to just simply 
just delete someone and there's there's no redeeming someone i i think if they can honestly uh change their ways understand where they have messed up and honestly assess their their shortcoming in this kind of a situation i think that's when the public is willing to forgive or at least allow them to move on from it and that's going to be on on tessa to address this and to handle it but i think just ignoring it it's only going to continue to surface at different times especially now where she's in such a prominent spot at impact wrestling what her future holds who knows um impact is enough off the radar that this didn't strike me as a story that was going to jump into any kind of mainstream outlets covering this like this would be a a very different story if she was a performer with wwe with aew i would say that this would get a lot more attention but i think impact is still viewed as i think it's a small amount of people that are watching it and therefore it's not as big a story as it could be and we'll see what the next move is i did hear that um Fight Network was following Tessa Blanchard around throughout the weekend because they were set to do one of their diary episodes that they've done on several talents where they follow them around. And certainly, if you had been looking ahead to this pay-per-view, Tessa would be the natural subject to pick for this weekend, given the coronation and facing Sammy Callahan and what was built up to. And what they ended up with was a weekend where Tessa Blanchard was the focus of the news, but for a completely different reason. And I don't know what that episode will contain. If this is even going to be addressed, you would have to imagine it would be hard to avoid given if they were around her all weekend. But um, that was an interesting note as well. So I definitely encourage people to check out um, the discussion with uh, Nate, Andrew and Brian from Sunday night. Uh, They went through this uh, in a very thorough fashion and looked at many different um, avenues to this. And it's when you remove the kind of emotional side of however you feel about Tessa Blanchard and these accusations, which I think we need to be fair that we have not heard from Tessa yet as well, but you have heard from enough people, uh, including the wrestler, in question um this is a female who is now uh, well in japan at the time but at um now competing in puerto rico uh la rosa negra who spoke to the contra lona outlet and uh she is not speaking in english but is it is done in english subtitles she does not name tessa blanchard but does certainly allude to this and in essence saying that she has moved on from this incident and she said that she is not uh, an apology is not necessary that she has moved on from it and i don't know if that means that she doesn't feel tessa needs to apologize or just that she's not really interested in hearing from an apology um she didn't really get into the context of what that meant but um you can watch that interview if you would like i did post it in the update on monday up on the site as well so that is the latest involving uh, that story Uh, We also had uh, MJF announcing on Monday that he has wrapped up with MJF. It is believed that his contract has ended uh, with the group that he has been with since 2017, and he had been working with both MLW and AEW, so it looks like he will now be dedicating all of his time to AEW, and 
He joined MLW back in 2017, of course, was part of the Dynasty Group, became their first middleweight champion when they introduced that title back in July of 2018. And then the recent tag title run with Richard Holiday ended at the last set or the last pay-per-view in November that they ran, losing it to the Von Erichs. So he will be wrapping up on a future episode of Fusion. They were in uh, just outside of Dallas on Saturday night for a set of tapings, and that looks to have been his final date with the company. And finally, um, Marty Skrull, we haven't really discussed it um, since since we have been gone, but is staying with Ring of Honor. Got an extremely lucrative deal, and what everyone is also focused upon is the fact that it comes with a, a, a creative component to all of this, that he is going to have his hand in creative, which sounds like it's going to be uh, a significant hand in creative, that he is going to be... Um, he is going to have a, a significant role with Ring of Honor and its vision going into 2020. And Ring of Honor is desperately in need of a facelift at this point. Um, Hunter Johnson is still in his role. It was kind of described to me like he is, you know, in the role of a, an executive producer of Ring of Honor. So he is very much uh, still there and kind of overseeing everything. Um, for Marty Skrull, it's, I think that this is a, a very positive move for Ring of Honor in several uh, several reasons. Number one, it is retaining a talent, which is always a strong message that you, for for all you want to say about Ring of Honor, uh, when it's come to talent that they want, they've been very aggressive in trying to keep them. And sounds like the uh, the financial side has been a huge positive for Ring of Honor. It's it's a hell of an offer to make for someone with the kind of figures that you're hearing th- being thrown out for some of these performers. Contrast with the number of dates that they're working, that it's a much more manageable schedule. And for Marty, he is 31 years old. So he is going to have this chance to not only make great money at Ring of Honor, be on a limited schedule, take dates elsewhere as well, including with the NWA, but also now he can add this other tool, which is in the creative department. And it's almost as though you're coming in with a team that has just had a pretty poor losing season and ring of honor fans are looking for something new. They want a different presentation for this company. I think you can look at this roster and talent to me is not my big concern. It's the utilization of this talent and the overall positioning of this brand. What is ring of honor in 2020 and beyond. It is no longer the the go-to high work rate promotion that that is how it differentiates itself with the undiscovered and hottest independent talent that it was over a decade ago. It's greatly changed. The landscape has changed. And now you're getting, I mean, every company has top flight talent that can go out and and have great matches to varying degrees from promotion to promotion. So to me, Ring of Honor, it is going to have to find a way to have compelling stories, solid directions for these different performers. And it's largely, it's, it's not something you snap your fingers and just change the face of a company. And it's coming off a year where it was painted with a very negative brush from the on-screen product to behind the scenes and all of the stories that came out regarding Ring of Honor that this was this was a terrible year for the company and their attendance once you take out the Madison Square Garden figure that propped the entire year up for them. So that's certainly a story to watch. Also for Ring of Honor, they announced that for Supercard of Honor, which will be on Saturday night, April 4th in Lakeland, Florida, 
Uh, they have added Jay White. So this is the strongest sign of a New Japan Ring of Honor alliance uh, continuing in this year. We knew it existed, and Harold May had said as much in a recent interview, but this is the first notable talent exchange that has happened in in, in quite a bit of time with uh, Jay White being sent over for this show, which will be going head-to-head with the NXT TakeOver card, which will be about 40 minutes away from ROH in Lakeland. So they're going to certainly promote that card very heavily, and we're going to see what they're going to be able to draw, but it looks like they will have uh, New Japan involvement on this show, uh, led by Jay White. Uh, and they also have announced Marty Skrull for that show. So um, uh, an enormous get after this weekend that Marty Skrull will be on Supercard of Honor as well. And in terms of any other news or notes, you can head over to postwrestling.com. There is always news happening on uh, just hourly clip. So always keep it tuned to postwrestling.com. And we can now head into Raw from Monday night, Lexington, Kentucky at the Rupp Arena. And this show kicked off with... Randy Orton coming out, and he said that he was instructed to come out here and excitedly welcome everybody to the show, but excitedly is not his style. No kidding. And he calls out AJ. AJ was fooled by the knee injury. He fell for it last week and started bragging about his version of the RKO, and some people thought it was the best version of the RKO that they've ever seen, and AJ thinks he can win the Royal Rumble. That leads to Drew McIntyre interrupting him, and they're obviously leaning much more on comedic lines for Drew McIntyre, but not for comedy purposes. They're very much trying to get this guy over as sort of a cool baby face that the audience gets behind, and I thought he had some success with it last week, but uh, there was this awful dick joke during this about pretty much AJ and Randy arguing over the size of their RKOs, and then he makes the joke that his Claymore is bigger. And Randy's reaction of just, like, flipping the microphone, like, it was just the lamest joke. Anyway, this led to a triple threat match. We had a sign in the crowd for Pork Chop Cash and Dream Machine, the Bruise Brothers, which I found amusing. Uh, Randy Orton, AJ Styles, and Drew McIntyre, uh, your standard three-way, Gallows and Anderson got involved. Anderson got taken out with a Claymore to set up the commercial break. Afterwards, Drew does his countdown, but the Claymore gets cut off with an Orton drop kick, And then Drew gets dropped onto the barricade and then posted by Randy. So Orton attacks Drew with the steps, and then Siles lands a draping DDT, taking that one out of Randy's book onto Orton. And then Randy cuts off AJ, and he sets up, and Randy Orton hits the Styles Clash. AJ kicks out. Randy calls for the RKO. It's countered with a roll-up. And then Randy hits the RKO on AJ when Drew returns, nailing Orton with the Claymore. And Drew McIntyre pins AJ at 10 minutes and 23 seconds. Fine match. I am really enjoying AJ playing Randy Orton. I think that he is, um, first of all, if you're going to do this kind of role where someone's got to simulate the other, go with the video gamer when in doubt, because AJ has probably played Randy Orton numerous times and has all of his mannerisms down pat. So they did not deliver on the advertised singles match with Orton and AJ inserting Drew and then Drew going over. I still feel like they will get to that Orton Styles match. Maybe at the Rumble, maybe elsewhere. They seem to be beefing up their television quite a bit, so it would not surprise me if they go to the well with that one on TV either. So you have options. And Drew is obviously the top priority at the moment. That's how it feels like on this show. 
Um, he was, you know, he, he's one of several that are getting big pushes at the moment. And you can't even isolate that. It's just Drew. They, they, you can see who are the chosen ones at the moment. It is Drew McIntyre. It's Buddy Murphy. It's Alistair Black and it's Andrade. Those seem to be the big four. And that's who they're going with. And I think that's a good number. I, I think that they can learn from AEW in the sense of pick a limited number and go all the way with them. And your hope is that, okay, we throw four at the wall, maybe two stick. And then we got two stars. That should be the hope. AEW, I think they have really fallen into the trap where not so much the main event talent because they're established, but it's your middle tier that it's let's put the shine on everybody. And instead of everyone getting the shine, no one gets the shine. And that to me is the danger of trying to get everybody over and nobody gets over. AEOP's in the locker room. Rollins enters. So his new nickname is the Monday Night Messiah. And he is slowly morphing into like a Jesus-like character with his mannerisms. He closes his eyes and like leans up towards the sky. I was waiting for a light to shine down on him. So they're going, they're going over the line into camp with the Messiah stuff with Seth Rollins that he's almost like this, this deity to AOP. They're like the wholesome version of Punk's, uh, character from 2010. Ricochet and Mojo Rawley, this was short, uh, Ricochet did some dance moves and then tossed Mojo over the top rope and then hit a Topecon hero. Of course, everyone's throwing everyone over the top rope to play mind games for the Royal Rumble. Rawley hit a pounce. Mojo then uh, caught him on a dive and then Ricochet lands on his feet, comes off the shoulders, hits the recoil and the 630 to win in three minutes and 34 seconds. Lawler, even with the win by Ricochet, is still picking Drew McIntyre to win the Royal Rumble. Nothing against this match, nothing against any of this, but all I could say was watching this match is that how you could be clamoring for Will Ospreay to come here and where Will Ospreay would be in this show. I can, he would be Ricochet. That is where Will Ospreay, the top wrestler in the world, would be on Raw at the moment because I'm watching Ricochet and here's a guy that could have had just as good a match with Will Ospreay or Hiromu Takahashi last week. And here he is, three and a half minutes with Mojo Rawley to a mum crowd response. The Street Profits are backstage. They plug the fist fight. Dawkins is working on his Oscars ballot as, uh, or his Oscar ballot as they look into the camera, uh, to acknowledge making a forced pop culture reference. Haha. <laughs> and then they throw to Charlotte Flair, who comes out. That was the Street Profits involvement tonight. Charlotte Flair took on Sarah Logan after they did the brawl last week. Very short. They exchanged or Flair delivered chops. Uh, they went to the floor, came back. Logan got sent into the buckle. Figure eight by Charlotte, and she wins in two minutes and six seconds. But that's not enough. She threw Logan over the top rope because, yes, Sarah Logan is also in the Women's Royal Rumble. Joe and Owens are backstage arguing over what the rules are for the fist fight. They need to go to the wrap and find out, as uh, Tony Maglio had all the rules ahead of time this afternoon. Joe told Owens not to worry. Big Show came in. He said he's going to knock out Seth Rollins. Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman walked out for their segment. Heyman did a southern accent, and he insulted the things that live here in Kentucky. He makes fun of them for chanting his name right after he insulted the the fans, which I guess is a valid criticism. Heyman says his client does not suck. 
goes to leave the ring, comes back, starts it all over, and talks about his spoilers, and that his spoilers have never been wrong, and they've replaced The Undertaker's WrestleMania streak, and Brock is going to dominate the Rumble because his spoilers always come true. So at that point, our truth comes out. He talks about his childhood hero, John Cena, teaching him to never give up because now our truth is entering the Rumble and he cuts a promo about throwing out the big Paul Heyman over the top. And Paul Heyman responds, calling him a bong hit and explains the truth uh, to truth that Heyman is not in the Rumble. Lesnar is. So with this news, truth undeclares himself. Lesnar found this hilarious and then. Paul just talks for a long time. Truth says he doesn't like spoilers. I would not get along with this guy. He doesn't want to go to Sioux Falls City. He's corrected. It ends with Lesnar killing him with the F5. He holds the 24-7 title. I guess contemplated pinning him and then just laughed at the notion and just tossed it to Truth. And then in his best Nate Diaz delivery said, that's what's up. To our truth This had to be... I'm sure people got a kick out of Lesnar getting a kick out of our truth, but to fly this man over here for an appearance, it seemed like we had no idea of anything of substance to do with Brock Lesnar. He's in the Royal Rumble. That's it. We did the segment last week. I don't know what this accomplished other than some comedy. And all I can say is after traveling on numerous airplanes yesterday, it would have been tough for me to fly all the way to do this. But as Way would point out, I can hear him right now. He's being paid for this. R-Truth is helped to the back as Mojo runs out and lands a boot to pin R-Truth for the title, and then he challenges anyone to take it. So Mojo Raleigh is now the 24-7 champion. Color me uninterested. Bobby Lashley and Lana arrive from earlier in the evening. Lana recaps the wedding from two weeks ago. Their New Year's resolutions are that everyone is envious and jealous of them, and... The second one is to crush Rusev. You know, I just watched this like two hours ago. I do not remember this at all of Lashley and Lana speaking. It's in my notes. It's written in fairly good detail. I have not not a chance I remember this. Bobby Lashley and Rusev. Rusev is on offense at the beginning. They go through a commercial break after a spear to Rusev on the floor. Lashley works on the knee, wraps it around the post. Rusev comes back, fires up. Misses a Machka kick and then pops up after taking a released German. And then as he goes for the accolade, Lana gets on the apron, allowing Lashley to clip the knee. And there's a double clothesline as Liv Morgan comes down and Liv yells, do it. I dare you. I dare you. And I was waiting for the double dare, but I guess that's saved for Drew McIntyre promos. Lana tosses a soda at Liv Morgan, who dies from this, uh, carbon dioxide and Lashley then spears Rusev and wins it in 14 minutes and 20 seconds. This one went 14 minutes and 20 seconds. So um, average at best is what I can say. And in terms of this program, it looks as though next week we're going to get a mixed tag with Rusev teaming with Liv Morgan and we'll be taking on Lana and Bobby Lashley. So look forward to that one next week, everybody. From there, we went to the announcement that there would be a women's battle royal on NXT. Winner will face, presumably, Rhea Ripley at TakeOver in Portland next month. Plus, the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, highlighted by the grizzled young veterans taking on the Time Splitters, Alex Shelley and Kushida. Charlie interviewed Lash Lashley and Lana. 
Lana called Liv a troll, and this is where the challenge was made for the mixed tag that Rusev and Liv would accept later on. Viking Raiders came out for a promo. They put out the open challenge, which was answered by the Sings. Surprise, surprise. Viking experience. They pinned Sunil in 38 seconds. They need opponents. Badly. Rusev was with Liv. Rusev calls them a waste of his breath. He will fight them next week. And Liv ended the promo by saying, I am the living embodiment of your karma. And karma, she isn't only a goddess, but is an honest-to-God bitch. Our favorite word in WWE vernacular. Tables match is coming up on SmackDown this week. Roman Reigns versus Bobby Roode. And then Becky Lynch comes out. We've got a contract signing between Becky and Asuka, hosted by Jerry Lawler. Kyrie Sane was also out. Asuka yelled in Japanese. And then Becky goes after Kyrie and tosses Sane's umbrella away. Both sign the contracts. Becky says, may the best woman win and gets sprayed in the face with the mist. And she sold this like she had been uh, hit with acid in the face. That's how much she sold this. She was blinded. She was in pain and eventually got to the microphone and said that the awards and praise that she has received are all poison. Asuka is hungry and angry while she's been happy and content. And she's the most dangerous person she's ever faced, referring to Asuka. And she's had to search for that anger. But when someone puts their hands on her, it puts a badness into her. And if she's going down, she's going down swinging, and she's taking Asuka with her. To this point, I would say that no hands were laid upon Becky Lynch. So I would take it as the figurative putting the hands on Becky, which I think Asuka's done several times, has she not? So... I, uh, some people have felt that Becky has given too much. I think that this is, I have not minded it in the sense that this is this hurdle for Becky where she has expressed this self doubt that is a momentary sign of, of doubt that she has placed upon herself, which will make it all that more of the accomplishment when she finally beats Asuka and comes out of it feeling, yes. I am the baddest woman in this company, on this planet, and she beats her rival at the Royal Rumble. So I don't have as much of an issue with it, um, providing it's a solid win for Becky Lynch at the Rumble, which I think it should be. And then you can introduce Shayna Baszler after that, which to me would be the roadmap to WrestleMania. Next week on Raw from Wichita, Kansas, it's going to be a ladder match between Andrade and Rey Mysterio for the United States title. I am ready to retire ladder matches. I think I have watched enough ladder matches for my lifetime, and I made this decision about 10 minutes into the four-way match at TakeOver on Sunday. Sarah Schreiber interviewed Andrade in Vega. Vega says that Andrade was man enough to beat Ray at Madison Square Garden, man enough to rip his mask off, and they called the authorities on this low-life criminal, Ray, and he's a disgrace to Latinos everywhere and a bad example for Dominic and his other children. So, Zelina Vega called the authorities for that attack last week. When we are a month removed from Andrade drilling a man's head into the cement and we have not seen Humberto Carrillo since. So this is, to me, a, a larger precedent that was set by Andrade versus the attack last week by Rey Mysterio. So I just don't want the man to incriminate himself by pressing these charges that God knows he has given fuel to be called upon by himself. Charlie then interviewed Ray 
I could I could just watch this guy do promos every single week. He's not happy with Andrade trying to injure Carrillo. He will sacrifice years of his career and his life for this ladder match next week. So this guy, Rey Mysterio, he is willing to compromise the back five of his life for this ladder match. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being on your deathbed surrounded by your family? grandchildren, and knowing that you are about to exhale your last breath and you could have had another year, maybe two, but I did that ladder match on January 20th of 2020 with Andrade that did 2.1 million viewers. Wasn't against football. Maybe we hit 2.3. Could you imagine Rey Mysterio is willing to sacrifice a portion of his life for this ladder match next week. He understands the consequences. He accepts them and he's going to take back the United States title. What I loved about this was that we have this match for next week. And listen, Rey Mysterio and Andrade, it's going to be great. Um, And with a ladder match, it's going to be ambitious from them. They uh, providing they deliver this because advertising and delivering are two separate categories. We will see if the two shall meet on next week's show, but I just like the idea that we just got promos from both guys building up the show. These were serious promos from Zelina, from Andrade, and then from Ray. And that's all I asked for. It was a match announcement, and we heard from each guy explaining why they have to win and why this is important next week. And this was great. We got a video feature on the history between Aleister Black and Buddy Murphy taking us into their latest singles match. And listen, I understand Aleister Black has won a dozen of these in a row. Um, it's really only been two, but I am not complaining when I get this match. I enjoy it every time out, and this was no exception. Lawler talked about guys that he had trouble beating, much in the way Buddy Murphy has with Aleister Black. And this allowed us to get references to Nick Bockwinkle, Bill Dundee, and wrestling Randy Savage in the Rupp Arena in Lexington, as well as Bret Hart uh, here on this show. So the fact that Bill Dundee got name dropped, could you have imagined if he was on that Memphis tribute last week that he could have been mentioned on Dynamite and on Raw within the period of five days? So they're having a good match as they go to break. Murphy gets booted into the timekeeper's area. And then there's a flying knee that sends Black off the turnbuckle. And he like leaps into the barricade. This was out of a video game. Murphy goes for a cover, grabbing the tights and gets caught by the referee. And then there is a Topecon hero that gets stopped with a knee strike in the ring. Black then is sent off the turnbuckle with a kick. There's a jumping version that drives Murphy. Sorry, this was the spot where Murphy leaped off the turnbuckle and crashed into the barricade. You have to go back and watch this. He got tremendous distance on this. There's a push kick into a head kick by Black, followed by a Cabrata, which is stopped with a kick to the body in midair. Murphy's Law, but Black gets his foot onto the rope. Enormous reaction for this. Murphy then misses his own version of the Black Mass and gets hit with Blacks. And the referee counts one, two, and then he stops. He's trying to point to the shoulder being up. Now, we didn't get... Uh, clear angle of the shoulders, but I rewatched this. It did not look like Murphy's shoulder. If it got up, it was so minor that nobody was noticing this. And I know the referees are in this impossible position where they're to call it like a shoot. And 
in this, it just seemed like it was, man, we could have just done the three and this would have been a much cleaner presentation. And instead, the guys really had to just improvise and clearly it was the finish. And they just go and at least they improvised enough where it wasn't Black just lifting up Murphy and doing a direct follow-up Black Mass. But instead, it was Murphy down on his knees selling the effects of the Black Mass and hitting him with another as Murphy goes down and gets pinned. So uh, I didn't have too much of a big problem with the finish. But it, it, if you're going to critique, it, it did interrupt the flow at the end. But these two had a great match. Dynamic chemistry. I really enjoy these two together. And... Listen, it's Alistair Black. He's got this guy's number. And he's won, and he's won, and he's won. And we complain about 50-50 booking. They're not doing 50-50 here. This guy is better than that guy. And you know what? They have something in mind, storyline-wise, for Buddy Murphy, which will be realized before the end of the show. And they show Murphy, after the break, just huddled down by the barricade in disbelief that he is lost again. Charlie tries to interview him. He politely tells her to get lost and does not want to speak. Eric Rowan murdered a dude in a minute 19. This saw Eric Rowan open up his mysterious cage, reach in, and apparently this thing bit him because he started bleeding. This is awful. It's a, it, This is stupid. I'm done with this stupid creature. Whatever's in there, it sucks. It sucks. What could be revealed in this thing that would cause people to go nuts and say, wow, they got me. That's awesome. A new contract? What? What What could be in here that would bite him? Some of these contracts could bite you if you suffered an injury. It would feel like you've been sliced in the hand. Main event, Seth Rollins and AOP versus Samoa Joe, Kevin Owens, and The Big Show in our first ever fist fight. A fist fight ends by the referee's discretion. There are no pinfalls, no submissions, no DQs, no countouts. The referee just stopped things stops when he feels like it so in a weird way maybe that was the impetus behind that hell in a cell we all hated between rollins and the fiend it was a fist fight and the referee had seen enough so the match begins rollins and aop jump the big show on his way down so kevin owens and joe run down they've got kendo sticks and we just get a five minute brawl and it was short but it was it did not lack action they fought up the stage kevin owens did one of the coolest things this year so we've got the like like the like the half pipe raw entrance. So Kevin Owens went full fucking Bo Jackson running up this half pipe and then did a swanton to the floor to watch this guy run up this side panel to do a flip at his size and not fuck up. This guy could have slipped and looked like the biggest idiot and he pulled it off miraculously well this looks so cool i'm gonna write this down so i don't forget the spot i thought it looked so cool joe then hits a senton coming off the stage putting akum through a table rollins it then lands on the floor he's back in the ring where big show is and there is buddy murphy still despondent from the loss to black and rollins asks for his help and he's left to think about it show Choke slams Rollins, and then he's setting up for the knockout punch when Buddy Murphy makes his decision and hits Big Show with a low blow. And they put him through a table in the corner. AOP then use Owens to put Joe through the announcer's desk, and then they return to the ring. 
as Big Show is trying to fight off Rollins and Murphy, but it becomes a four-on-one attack with AOP joining in. Rollins hits the stomp, and the stomp is it. The referee has seen enough, and he calls it off. Five minutes and 17 seconds. Murphy then embraces Seth Rollins, and the four of them pose together, and it looks like this is our top heel unit with Seth Rollins, the Monday Night Messiah, with the AOP, and Buddy Christ Murphy. And that was Raw. Not a bad show at all. I thought this was one. Listen, if I could get through this with the jet lag I'm experiencing, then I feel I've got to up my opinion of the show just to compensate for my exhaustion. But I would say what Raw has going for it is that they it's clear who they are pushing hard to get to that next level. And it feels like they like there was a period last year and it was, you know, save for some of the Survivor Series stuff. It was like three to four months. It was a real slog getting through Raw. And in particular, while we got to the end of the year, it just felt like we're throwing stuff, nothing's sticking, but they were they were investing in certain guys. And some have made it, some have not. But now it does feel you have the anticipation of the Royal Rumble. I think you generally have a more enthusiastic fan base because they know this is the big season that is kicking off. And it seems like certain guys are clicking at a good level. You've had Joe come back. He's great in this babyface spot. Kevin Owens is finally in a decent top spot. Rollins, you needed the heel turn. Um, you had the likes of Drew McIntyre, Aleister Black, Andrade is really hitting his stride now. Rey Mysterio has been the, I won't even say unsung hero, because I think everyone has seen uh, the how great he's been over this past six to eight months. He's been a star on Raw. So he's been a big help uh, to the overall flow of this show. It just feels like Raw does have some components now that are definitely hitting. Three hours, no one is ever going to watch this show and say, man, they hit those three hours out of the park. It's not possible. Th- these three hours are the bane of most people's existence. So you are you are trying for at best a good 90 minutes. I think that is a target to try and hit every week. And there's going to be a lot of down downtime during Raw. Not everything is going to be captivating, but I would say they have more now than they've had in a few months' time. I don't think that the Rusev-Lashley stuff has really connected at any level. I don't see how Lana and Liv Morgan inject a whole lot of intrigue either. Um, that would be some of my negative. Brock Lesnar felt like such a throwaway appearance this week. It just it meant nothing. It was as though... Like, I I don't know what you do with him beyond the Royal Rumble. He has no target. He has no person to address. It's just, I'm in the Rumble. And that was established last week. And this week, you're doing goddamn comedy with R-Truth. And it was, I don't know. I'm sure I'm going to hear from people that love this segment. I did not. I just found it kind of a waste of Brock Lesnar. And just, how do we keep him busy? Because we've got this appearance. And that was the show. So let us go to do some feedback, and then I'll do a few thoughts on NXT UK TakeOver. I have never checked our recording so often as I have tonight, because if this was not recording, I would die. Feedback from tonight's episode. We start off with our poll, and on tonight's show, on a scale of 1 to 10, I am going to predict this gets a 6.5. And I know that's going to be on the high end, because I don't expect that from our forum. A 5.46. Do I know you or not? We start off with Brandon from Oshawa. 
that might be the only fist fight that I've ever seen where there wasn't a single fist thrown. <laughs> was there no fist thrown in any of this? That is a wonderful point. I got, I got leaps. I got jumps. I got table breaks. We got a stomp. We got a low blow. I mean, a fist was formed by Big Show. He just could not execute the knockout punch. But a fair comment. I love Buddy Murphy joining Rollins and AOP. It's about time the main roster had a stable of more than three guys. I feel sorry for Aleister Black. That ref totally screwed him over by being blind. I don't think anyone had kicked out of the black mask before. It's time for Paul Heyman to, it's time for Paul Heyman to go. He's been cutting the same exact promo for five or six years and it's boring. I can't believe they wasted a Brock appearance on R-Truth. You can't have a ton of face-offs in the Rumble, but they can use these weeks to tease stuff. Do you think they'll throw a mask stipulation into the Ray and Drade feud or will next week be the blow? off i think that next week will not be the blow off i think they it would be very silly not to do the mask after so heavily teasing it um with the mask removal and if not i think that was a waste of a great angle of removing ray's mask and making people want to see that so i'm not a big fan of doing like your big 20 minute ladder match next week and then coming back with a mask match down the road so i could see something uh, thwarting the ladder match next week or pushing it to another time. And you could do title versus mask. The problem is that it's kind of hard to imagine that this U.S. title means so much to Ray that he would risk his mask, that the U.S. title does not feel valuable and the mask does. So you kind of have to square that and make people really want to see Ray win this title. And that's the problem when you have titles that mean very minimal is that you can't really tap into that emotion that a title win should have. Andrew from Cape Breton. So I think I may have figured out boo-boo face. This term in wrestling where someone goes to the ring and it looks like they're going to lose based on the look on their face. Rusev had it bad tonight, and considering he's constantly losing and made to look like a goof in this feud, I don't blame him. I also don't know what I was expecting from the fist fight. The main fist we got was the one that hit Big Show's balls. Despite the match being weird, I like them bringing Murphy in with Seth Rollins. Sometimes in wrestling, when a guy loses multiple times in a row, it means they're going down the card like Cedric Alexander, so it was great to see that change up for Murphy. Lastly, I stole this from Twitter, but the rumor is the monster in Rowan's cage is actually wrestling Twitter. No wonder people find it so horrific. Well, I don't know how you would uh, put that into a human form or a non-human form, um, but sure, why not? Um, maybe it's YouTube comments. Nas from New York City. Minus Rusev and Lashley, this was a really good episode of Raw. The opening of the show was great with McIntyre winning. Genuinely loved the closing angle. Though the match was a bit trash, would love to see Big Show put Murphy over next week. I know the truth Brock thing isn't for everyone, but I truly laughed so hard throughout that segment. Cannot for the life of me believe that this Rusev-Lashley isn't over yet. We'll be skipping the mixed trash next week. Alexander from Portland. WWE has done a good job with building intrigue for whatever Rowan has in the cage. Yes, I am at the, the edge of my seat with my back to the... But knowing the main roster, I can't help but expect to be disappointed with whatever is in there. What do you see being the reveal for what he's got in there? Wait, what realistically could be in this cage that would result in the biggest pop? I would sarcastically say a hand. I would seriously say a... Piranha. I don't know. I don't think anything that's in this cage is going to provide a... A, a unanimous sense of praise for whatever is in this. Matt writes, as much as I like the Viking Raiders, I'm just wondering where the division is headed. Do you see them defending the titles at the Rumble? You could. There's no teams that I think anyone is 
desiring to see paired with the Viking Raiders. Gallows and Anderson seem kind of we've we've been there, we've seen that. AOP seem to be separated from the tag division at the moment. It wouldn't hurt to put the tag titles on AOP. You're pushing them as a top act. They could be fine. Um, the Viking Raiders need challengers, though. That is clear. Like they need uh, a heel tag team, and there's not a whole lot of teams on Raw. So it's kind of just these guys killing people each week until they come up with some direction for these tag titles. And there isn't much of one at the moment. I, I would love to see a team form, um, but it's not a whole lot of options in that tag division. And Nick from Lansing is uh, the next one here. There's only one segment I want to talk about from tonight's show, and that involved the one person in WWE who can still play to a crowd, and that's Paul Heyman. The man controls a crowd like a conductor with an orchestra. Lexington might have been the hottest crowd I can remember in six months, and he played them like a violin. Personally, I thought the payoff with Truth was funny. He also has a connection with the crowd. Few else on the roster do. I hope Mojo can do something with it. But why didn't Brock pin Truth for the belt? Brock hoarding both belts as Heyman mocks the jobbers week to week that he isn't there. Hell, why not shoot a couple of segments of people try to sneak into Brock's place to keep in, keep it in people's minds? All right, I lied. Becky did more to make Asuka seem credible in one promo than WWE has since she lost to Charlotte at WrestleMania 34. I don't need to see Brock with that 24-7 title. I don't need to see goofs on his property trying to steal the title. I don't want to see Brock doing comedy stuff that is reserved for the 24-7 title. So um, that is it. Um, and MJ, uh, writes here, did you see DraftKings and WWE doing a partnership for Royal Rumble? I thought this was something that would have happened a while ago. Yes. They've announced a partnership, uh, for this promotion, um, for the Royal Rumble. Uh, I don't have all the details of it, uh, right in front of me, but yes, maybe I'll, uh, include that in the update tomorrow. So yeah, interesting that, um, you know, I, DraftKings has advertised on WWE prior, but this is maybe, a step further doing a kind of interactive uh, I, uh, contest for people watching the Royal Rumble. So anyway, I'll have to look more into that. But yes, did see that today. All right. Uh, before we get on out of here, what time are we at? Wow, we've gone over an hour. It, this is the this is as far as I think I can go talking to myself and not uh, not not hearing the tones of, of waiting uh, responding to me. Okay, so over the weekend, uh, I did get to see the TakeOver Blackpool 2 card, and I saw most of the Impact show. So for NXT UK TakeOver, Blackpool 2, first of all, the longest name uh, imaginable. Um, I thought, I, I can say this for both shows, I thought neither show was a blow-away great show. I think there were elements of great things on each show, but I I would say neither show to me was one that... I would recommend as a whole. Um, the Blackpool card, um, fine opener with Trent Seven and Eddie Dennis. They went 816 with uh, the Razor's Edge delivered to uh, one of the talents on the floor who was just playing like a PA. Uh, that was a cool spot. And then it was the next stomp driver, which allowed Eddie Dennis to get the win. This was after Seven got sent into the exposed buckle. It was fine. Um I guess it was, you know, it was a crowd that was there to be entertained, so they added an atmosphere to the match. It was fine. I wouldn't go above fine. So in 2020, is fine what you're looking for on your big shows. To me, it's not. I, especially on a, on a takeover card, the bar is high, and that's where you've set it. So that's where my expectation is going to be. And on a five-match card, uh, fine is not fine. 
Kaylee Ray, Tony Storm, and Piper Niven was next for the NXT UK women's title. 13 minutes, 10 seconds with Kaylee Ray retaining the title. I'm a big fan of Kaylee Ray. I enjoy her promos a lot. I think that she is a great addition to this women's division. And, you know, this was, they were put into a scenario in a three-way match that, man, if I'm retiring ladder matches, three ways are next on the list. It's got to be a special, special reason to do these three ways because what happens is we've got to add another person and suddenly it it goes from less of an intense match to more of like a game, like a game of skill where I've got to outwit and outsmart you. And that's how these three ways are broken down. And it's just like these obstacle courses of I will hit you and then I will throw the other person away and I'm going to try and beat them before you can race over to break up the fall. And how clever can we make all of these teases that someone is going to take the pinfall and then the other person is going to pop back from the dead to save you. And I'm being too harsh on this because th- this was a match that, again, it was it was fine. We saw, especially the buildup at the end, Storm stopped a three count after a gory bomb was delivered by Kaylee Ray to Piper Niven, and then the Destroyer was hit from Nevin, Niven to Ray. Storm Zero followed that onto Ray, but Niven stopped it, and then it ended with a Storm Zero delivered to Ray on top of Niven, and then a pedigree to Niven for a two count. It ended with the frog splash by Tony Storm. Ray knocked her away and stole the cover, pinning Piper Niven 13 minutes and 10 seconds. So, I mean, if you like three-way spots and kind of outmaneuvering one another, I mean, this again, this match, it, it was fine. It was uh, it was good at points. Um, they had a, a decent end at the well. At the end, it was well laid out. But again, we have two matches that I would say were fine. Something that was not fine, and that's because it was excellent, was Tyler Bate and Jordan Devlin. Easy match of the show. 22 minutes, 23 seconds. Great call from Nigel McGuinness throughout this as well. Um I know that a lot of people were mocking the the gif of the striking exchange. And yes, when you watch that in a vacuum, it does look very uh, Ronda Rousey striking training bad. But it worked in the match. And they, I mean, this is a go-to for, for Devlin with the striking spots. And when they got into this, the crowd went nuts. Nigel's comparing it to Don Fry and Yoshihiro Takayama. And I mean, it worked for this crowd. And I think that's, that's the ultimate goal. And that usurps, um, you know, what, what a GIF is going to provide people. But, um, these two were at another level than I think anyone on this show. Uh, there was a rebound lariat that was caught with a standing one man Spanish fly. Bait then came off with a left off of his back. Uh, I mean, just out of nowhere with the strike off of his back. Then we got a one-man Spanish fly off the top. Devlin side suplex for a two. Tremendous sequence there. And then we got a near fall off of a Tyler Driver 97, which is rarely kicked out from. And then Bait followed with a corkscrew splash coming off the top, almost like a spiral tap. 22 minutes, 23 seconds. This was excellent. They showed Hunter, Johnny Saint, and William Regal giving a standing ovation. It was tremendous, and I watched this, and more so Tyler Bate than Jordan Devlin. Like, Tyler Bate could – you look at it in the sense that, man, this guy would be tearing it up on either AEW or NXT on Wednesday nights. Granted, NXT UK, they are getting television proper in the UK and Ireland with BT Sport, but it's still – it's not – 
BT Sport is not uh, 85 plus million homes that the USA Network is. And I think that, you know, it's a step forward for NXT UK. But in some ways, if I'm Tyler Bate, I'm wondering, is it almost like a handicap that now that we have this obligation of television, is that going to cement my placement here in NXT UK because we need certain stars to be on television that it's actually going to hinder my ability to move elsewhere because Tyler Bate is at a ceiling in NXT UK. I would say anybody that has thrived for a six month period has kind of hit their ceiling at NXT UK and TV or not. I think that there's a very clear ceiling to NXT UK, an overall monotony to NXT UK. This is a show that it hit me watching that prime target. That is all the, uh, that's the only show I needed to see to get caught up on everything. And there was so little footage from the television show in that prime target special that what a lack of an endorsement for the weekly TV show that it just felt like it feels totally skippable. And that is not what I want. If we're going to get more of these NXT satellite groups of just disposable content that is just being churned out and the motto becomes good enough we're just filling television time, and that's kind of what NXT UK feels like at times. But that was the match of the show. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. Four-way ladder match for the NXT UK tag titles. This saw Mark Coffey and Wolfgang of the the group that everyone just can't get enough of, Gallus. They retain the tag titles over Mark Andrews and Flash Morgan Webster. If you're new to NXT UK, these are the guys that got killed by the Viking Raiders a few months back. Uh, the team of James Drake and Zach Gibson, the grizzled young veterans, and Fabian Eichner and Marcel Bartel, who are a great team, part of Imperium. This was a match that, you know, so many people often cite uh, Jericho and Benoit as a, and, you know, to an extent, Michaels and Razor as well. Two matches that it was a fight where a ladder happened to be in the ring. This was a series of spots that just so happened to be taking place inside of a ring with titles above it. It was almost secondary. Mark Andrews was, to me, the biggest defender of this, where he had a clear path to the titles, and above winning these titles was the chance to have a shooting star press off of a ladder. And, um, yeah, I... The other negative was this went 25 minutes. This was way too long. Um... I sympathize with a lot of people that, you know, length of a match is something that this can't just be the blueprint that big match, you're getting 25 to 30. That is a huge investment by your audience. And I think that in this day and age, time is such a premium. You have to respect people's time and going 25 here when you were getting set for a 27 and a half main event, man, that's, that's a lot of time dedicated to this and that's where this one kind of wore thin for me. Um, you had some Im- Im- impressive spots here. Um, a 450 by James Drake off of the ladder delivered to Andrews. Gallus brought out tables as well. I mean, the audience was with this. I wouldn't say they were going nuts for this match. Lots of weapons involved here. Kendo sticks, tables. Uh, Wolfgang tackled Gibson through a ladder in the corner. And then Coffee tipped the ladder when Bartel was on it, allowing Gallus to climb and grab the tag titles at the 25-minute mark. So they retain. I Personally, I think this would have been a significant, significantly better match Eight to ten minutes less and two less teams. We already had four bodies and just a strict two-on-two match. 
much better focus. We understand what they're fighting for. And instead, we had eight guys to follow, and it was way too much. I just think this idea of just crowding a ring, especially for a ladder match, it's sometimes less is more. And we could have had less time and less bodies in this match. And I think it would have pulled everything up. And I, I would have put this much higher on the show, I think, if it had been shorter and just reduced some of what was here. The main event, Walter and Joe Coffey for the NXT UK title. I saw a lot of complaints from people about this main event. Um, I'm sure that there were some that at 27 and a half minutes uh, were looking for a cup of Joe, a cup of coffee midway through this. I I was on the side. I, I definitely did not hate this match. I didn't love it. Um, again, 27 and a half minutes is a lot. Uh, what I did enjoy about this, I thought there was a tremendous spot where Ilya Dragunov got involved and hit the Torpedo Moscow onto Alexander Wolf, who had previously run in. And in crashing into Wolf, Wolf knocked into Joe Coffey's left knee. And I thought this was going to play a much bigger role into the finish than it did because Coffey starts selling the knee. And he did this great spot where he goes to climb the turnbuckle and his knee gives out, just calling back to this injury that he's dealing with. And we get Coffey firing up with punches, which goes back to the prime target special where striking was something that Coffey has gone to training camp for in preparation for this match with Walter. And he just fires up as Walter is crouching down in the corner. And Nigel is stating that Walter doesn't like to get hit. So he's Brock Lesnar. And he attacks the bad knee to get him off of him. He hit all's best for the bells, which is his discus lariat for a two count. And then Walter fires back, chop, power bomb, and then this crossface style choke to submit Coffee at 2731. I thought this was so tailor made for Joe Coffee. The story is that he was embarrassed last year when he lost to Pete Dunn. And then he heard some of the reviews of the matches. No, but, uh, he loses the match to Pete Dunn, and then Walter debuts, and they just sideswipe him and send him off the apron to the floor, looking like a total putz, and he's had to live with this embarrassment for the past year. The problem is the audience does not see Joe Coffey as your big babyface. I mean, compare this guy to Tyler Bate. It is not even a question of who the top babyface is in this company, and Joe Coffey is not it. Um the match went long. I thought at the very least, the knee the knee injury, inadvertent as it was, sets up coffee to peel off with, with Dragunov. You could do that and get coffee back into kind of uh, his heel skin that I think he's much more natural for and also out of the title picture. But the knee injury really didn't play into things that it was pronounced. Like to me, this has to be Walter like getting by through the skin of his teeth after being lit up by punches. He does the the John Jones teep kick to the knee. And then from there, like a leg submission, something where the knee has to give out. And it's Dragunov who inadvertently costs coffee the match and Walter retains. But instead, it was this new uh, choke submission that Walter submits him with. I would say, again, this match was good going above to almost, yeah, I, I think good is as far as I would go if I was doing, uh, if I was going on stars, I'd be going two and three quarters to three. That would be probably my limit for this. This was nowhere in the league of Jordan Devlin and Tyler Bate, but uh, I, I saw some pretty 
uh, angry vitriol towards this match. I was not in that camp. I was, and I also didn't feel the drag that I did of other matches on this. Um, 27 was still too long, but I would say that it went, it, it did not kill me. Um, this length of the match either, but we need a new opponent and it looks like they are going to segue from that. Um, because it's Joe Coffey. Th- I, I just think it was a bad direction. From the moment those tapings took place and people saw this was the main event, it was indifference. And that was kind of a consistent theme throughout this whole promotion of this match and the execution of said match. Afterwards, Imperium is standing tall when the Undisputed Era run in. And this was by far the biggest pop of the show. This place went insane. Uh, Cole and Walter had a standoff. It was four on one. And Walter got laid out by the last shot. Really good angle to set up Worlds Collide on January 25th. And went off on a big high note. This was this crowd lost their mind when they got the surprise appearance. So that was NXT UK TakeOver Blackpool 2, Night 1 of 1. And then Hard to Kill, which, uh, what a name. Everyone was just blown away by this this name from Impact. So the show, uh, I've seen most of it by this point. Uh, Ken Shamrock and Madman Fulton opened up the show. It went 918. Uh, this apparently, uh, Mike Johnson reported on this, this was a legitimate shoulder injury that Fulton sustained and looked legit as you were watching it and saw the close-up of his shoulder that just was doing all these weird contortions. And... Shamrock ended up with a Kimura and then almost like this rings of Saturn and we got the verbal submission. So I would say like if, you know, the, the injury here that they were dealt with, I thought they handled it decently. Um, not to say this match was great. It wasn't. Um, and you have to wonder like kind of Ken Shamrock's role to me, he should almost be, you can't really put him in a commissioner role. Like it feels like a very dated role. And he's probably not the guy for it. But the idea behind a commissioner is that once or twice a year, the guy comes out of retirement for a big match. And that's kind of what an attraction like Ken Shamrock should be. I don't need to see this guy wrestling on every pay-per-view, much less regularly on television, because he stops being special. And then all of a sudden you have this grandfather that is fighting regularly. I mean, he doesn't look like it. He looks insane. Um and not too many guys his age can be out there in trunks uh, looking the way he does. Uh, Ace Austin and Trey for the X Division title. 12 minutes, 54 seconds. Trey got crotched. And then there was this leaping head scissors. And the fold was hit by Austin as he got the win. And afterwards, uh, Trey's uh, quote-unquote mom was in the front row. And Austin wanted a kiss from her. Trey returned and attacked. And kind of, I don't like this angle with the mother. Um, to me, it, it just makes Trey look like Buff Bagwell with Judy Bagwell. And here's the guy that you lose clean to this guy. And then after the fact, that's when you get the best of him. It's like you got beat by this guy clean. Then he's going to his mother for encouragement. And then the mom gets hit on. And then he then he runs back. And I don't know. It's just, it just to me, it really doesn't work for a baby face. So I, I'm ready for Trey to get away from this mom association. I just don't think it's doing much for him at all. Ace Austin's got a lot of potential, especially as a character. He's very young, but clearly impacts. He's a lot in him and is the kind of talent you want to be investing in that could certainly pay dividends down the road. Um, ODB cut this promo. Her food truck is coming back in the spring after it was burnt down and says 2020 has been a great year for her and it's great to be back in the impact zone. So, I mean, 
I was losing track of what city I was in yesterday on my way home. I imagine ODB was having flashbacks to thinking she was in Orlando. Taya Valkyrie, ODB, and Jordan Grace for the knockouts title. Callis called Taya the Nick Bockwinkle of this division. So we got Nick Bockwinkle references on Impact and Raw this week. Um, I will say, I don't know about Taya's Nick Bockwinkle. I definitely know Johnny Bravo is no Bobby Heenan. Um, this saw, um, you know, very similar to the three-way we saw on the UK show, where it was a lot of just trying to pin down a woman while the other was distracted or taken out, and it ended with a grace driver onto ODB. Johnny Bravo distracted the referee, and Taya stole the cover while Bravo held on to Jordan Grace in 1137. And so ODB eats the fall. The bigger match appears to be Taya Valkyrie and Jordan Grace with Johnny Bravo maybe suspended in a shark cage or eliminated from ringside so Jordan Grace can have her fair shot at Taya Valkyrie, who has now held this title for over a year. Brian Cage came out. He was wearing a Diamond Machines shirt, which is uh, was in support of Tessa Blanchard, which I'm sure had a double meaning on Sunday that you know, members of the locker room. Uh, Melissa Santos was very vocal in defending Tessa Blanchard in a Instagram story, and I am sure that would clearly extend to Brian Cage, given he was wearing this shirt, and probably not just for the, the main event storyline, but for what was happening this weekend. Rob Van Dam took on Brian Cage, and... We also had Jennifer at ringside, Rob Van Dam's girlfriend's girlfriend, and this barely, the match really didn't even start, and uh, Cage had his bicep uh, taped up as well, and they kept this very short with Cage getting attacked with a chair after being distracted by Forbes and took a Van Daminator to the mouth, and then a Van Terminator, and then Daga runs out. He had had a run-in with Van Dam backstage, and this led to an impromptu match that Van Dam won quickly in 4-11 with the Frog Splash, and then celebrated with Katie Forbes and Jennifer, Van Dam's girlfriend's girlfriend. And they just celebrated, and Rob Van Dam is 45 going on 25. That's kind of the gimmick. Older than 45, to be honest. Eddie Edwards, Michael Elgin, match of the night, 19 minutes, 52 seconds. Uh, these were two were tremendous together. Um, just built and built. And the final stretch of those five minutes, uh, they were really on another level than uh, most on this show. I, I, I would say this was my match of the night, even ahead of the main event. Uh, there was a German delivered to Edwards coming off the top, rotating him onto his chest. Elgin hit a splash mountain. Edwards kicked out of that. The, the near falls built. Like, the audience got more and more into them. They paced the match very well. There was a cross face by Elgin, and then he complained that Eddie tapped. He tapped once before reaching the rope. And then as Eddie is set up for the buckle bomb, he ends up rolling up Elgin to stop the Elgin bomb with a sunset roll-up at 19.52. So Ed Edwards wins, and this was for the Call Your Shot trophy. And uh, this was a great match. If you're going to see one match on this show, I would... I, I would go with this one, to be honest. Uh, I did not see the tag title match, the Rhino Moose match. Um, I believe that's those are the two I missed. And then Sammy Callahan and Tessa Blanchard for the Impact title. I was really interested to see what kind of reception Tessa Blanchard got. It was not a negative reaction. She came out. Um, she looked almost stoic at times. I am sure this has been an awful weekend for her. But, I mean, she seemed to put all of that behind her for... The second she came out and I mean, they had a hell of a main event. They went 23 and a half minutes, uh, 2350 um, to be exact. Sammy Callahan played the most despicable heel, just the asshole bully constantly running down Tessa, 
he was wrestling with like this slobber all over his mouth, like looking like an A1 dirt bag throughout this match. He just embodies this character very effectively and him and Tessa have tremendous chemistry together. It feels less of an intergender match and more so of just the underdog babyface trying to overcome the bully. And that's kind of the chemistry that they've been able to showcase over the past year. Um, there were several magnums by Tessa Blanchard, including one onto the edge of the apron. Um, but then she got driven into the barricade and sold her knee for the longest time. She's limping throughout. Tessa goes to block a chop and then gets her knee kicked out. And then she hits another magnum off the buckle, but she's limping. And she misses one coming off the top. So Blanchard then comes back with a cutter after yelling, fuck you, at Sammy. Sammy hits a sit-out powerbomb and then immediately goes to the stretch muffler, attacking the injured knee. Tessa then kicks him low, hits magnum off the top, only gets a near fall, and then goes to the cross face. He escapes, cactus special for a two count, and then he spits on her, but she hits a series of destroyers, and the buzzsaw DDT beats Callahan 23-50, and not much of a post-match to speak of, at least on the air. You can see more uh, online, but this was just Tessa, couple minutes in the ring, she was on her knees, um in tears, and that was how the show went off the air. So it was Impact um, going through a very tumultuous weekend, sticking with their plan, and you have to wonder, is this going to be a negative for Impact of doubling down and going with the original plan? Is this story just going to be one that gets swept under the rug or people forget about? I mean, let's let's not kid ourselves that Hulk Hogan, what... What negativity has he really faced since being reintroduced onto WWE television over a year ago? He's going to the Hall of Fame again this year. He comes out. It's not like this guy gets booed. He is seen as a star. Now, Tessa Blanchard is not Hulk Hogan, but in this in this environment, in Impact, she is a star. She is the top star in Impact. I think that it's, it's always interesting to see what is the public reception over a several-day period as opposed to the immediate, where you get a lot of emotional response from people is that going to last? Um, that's something I think Impact is banking on. It will not. Um, they, they have brought in several performers that have had baggage and they've powered through and they've largely gone without, without problems. Um, and now this is an issue facing them with, with a performer while they are actively working with the company. And we're going to see what the public outcry is or the lack thereof and maybe they feel we're just going to ride this out people are going to move on to another controversy we'll see if this is a big issue or not i i feel for tessa blanchard herself it's something she ultimately does need to address and it's her form to decide whether to do that um in her own words uh to do an interview about it something long form to explain what happened I think people want to hear from Tessa Blanchard, and we'll see if she opts to or does not. She opted not to this weekend beyond essentially just denying uh, what occurred. But anyway, she comes out of the weekend as Impact Champion. Um, I didn't see a whole lot of attention for this coming out of it. I think Impact was really hoping. I I really got the sense Impact as much they just wanted any kind of response to this, whether it be positive or negative. I think they would have been happy if there was an outcry of the idea of a female winning their world title. And I didn't sense any of that, to be honest. Um, I, I think the story involving Tessa Blanchard greatly uh, overshadowed the title win. 
And I can't say it was um, the title switch itself felt like a big deal 24 hours later. So uh, we will see what they do on Tuesday night's impact. They've announced uh, Joey Ryan taking on Johnny Swinger. There will also be a celebration with RVD and Katie Forbes coming off the win over Daga which I guess requires a celebration after a four-minute win. And then they're off to Mexico City this weekend for their next set of taping. So going back to uh, Fronton, Mexico. So that's what's coming up for Impact. All right. If you can't tell, I think my voice is just about to uh, tap out. So I am going to say goodbye to everybody. But we will be back later this week. Rewind to Dynamite is coming up on Wednesday night with myself and Damien Abraham, who will be here in studio. So I can take a sip of water and take a breath as well as I talk. So if any of you have made it this far, thank you so much. I'm, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, this is not the equivalent of having way here, but thank you for uh, bearing with me as I'm solo tonight. Sometimes it's uh, fun to just sit in a room and talk to yourself. But that is it. Thank you, everyone. Go check out postwrestling.com. Postwrestlingcafe.com is where you can get all your bonus shows. We'll have a few of those dropping. And Tuesday night, early access to the MMA prediction show with Ariel Hawani. You'll want to check that one out. That is it. Goodbye and good night.